Bible and before the kids would be dismissed, if you would open a Bible, if you have it, to the book of Job. Job is right before Psalm, so if you find the book of Psalm about midway through the Bible, right before that, to Job, Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Let me read God's word aloud for us. Job 2, 11 through 13. It says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard all about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you may be seated with the children being dismissed at this time, children in the kindergarten through sixth grade being dismissed for Children's Church with Miss Steph and Miss Mara. There are sermon notes in uh, your bulletin if you desire to follow along, and the fill-ins will be on the screen. Um, as we would start this message this morning, the last in uh, this series on good grief. So if we could pull that up, uh, this series on good grief, the slides that are there. We're going to talk today about a case study in comforting others. This series on good grief, uh, kind of playing on that whole Charlie Brown thing of good grief, but there is good grief. Grief is a gift of God in the midst of the brokenness of this world that we've talked about the fact from Psalm 42 and 43 that grief uh, is crushing, that grief is confusing losses, so we need to process it. Um, the way that we process it is we come into the presence of the Lord through prayer, through scripture, through his presence that leads us to those places of worship for who he is and praise for what he has done, is doing, and will do. Last week, we then went on to talk about the things that God will do, but being transformed through grief, that God has work that he does that is only able to be experienced when we grieve well. Things like being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus more as he grieved, so we will. And so it has a, an ability, grief it has a, a place that God will use to make us more like Jesus. It has a, a place to expand our joy as we grieve. As we experience the depths of loss, we can also experience the, the fullness of joy, fuller and fuller as we grieve. Uh, we can also learn to comfort others. And that's where we're going to talk about today, comforting others as we, out of the comfort that we receive. And also that we can be ready then for the new life, the resurrection that Jesus has for us on the other side. So as we talk about this good grief, we want to look at uh, from the book of Job, a case study this morning in comforting others, a case study in comforting others. And when I think about this, uh, where we've been last week and the comfort that we receive, I, I think about our neighbor back where we used to live. They had a koi pond that they had built right above our house. And so had these huge Japanese koi that were, would would uh, be in there and you could go and they were welcome to be, we could throw food in and all kinds of stuff. And it was, it was a great joy to see these huge fish. They, I mean, they got gigantic, 
But over time, they decided, our neighbors decided that just having a pond wasn't good enough. They decided to build kind of a waterfall up the hill a little bit. And so they had this pool up top that the water would flow down on rocks into this koi pond. It was just amazing, you know, and they had these kind of Japanese looking plants and stuff. It was this amazing oasis. It was pretty cool. But what was neat about it is that pond at the bottom had a recirculating pump in it that would take the water and would feed it up to the top pond where it would then run down out and then would eventually come back down into that pond. And it would just be this recirculating thing. So every year they'd put, they drain it, they put fresh water in it and it would just be this recirculating thing all spring, summer and fall. And when I, I think about that and that recirculating, that that's what we're talking about. And last week we talked about out of the comfort we receive We are able to comfort others. That's our starting point in this whole discussion on a case study in comforting others. We we looked last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. When we receive the comfort of God, we receive his compassion. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Boy, isn't that a great way to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in Russia? That God would comfort them in their troubles. So that we then can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So we talked about comforting others with the comfort that we've received from God. That as we grieve the losses of our lives and receive the comfort of God, we are then able to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. There's a principle in the kingdom that we are able to give away that which we have received from God. That's a key principle. Freely you have received, now freely give. What we have received from God, we are able to give away. It's the way the kingdom works. And so as we receive the comfort of God, as we grieve the losses of our lives, those, it can be the, the passing of a loved one. It can be the loss of a job or a dream or a season of life. It may be expectations that we had that just didn't come and haven't come to fruition. There's lots of things that we can and should grieve. And as we grieve them, the Lord is able to comfort us. And out of the comfort that we receive, our compassion grows, and we are then able to give away that comfort, the comfort of Jesus, the comfort of the Father that we have received. But in this, how do we do this comforting? And this is the last message in this series on good grief. How do we do this comfort? How do we give this comfort away? Because if we're honest, very few of us are really comfortable with comforting others. And I would say that even fewer of us do it well. Because sometimes when we're seeking to comfort others, it becomes awkward. It may be confusing. How do I do this? It'll get messy. And it's full of potential pitfalls. Especially, and this is what I want us to really think through as we work through this. There's pitfalls, especially if we have not ourselves grieved our losses. If we haven't grieved our own losses, it's going to be very hard for us 
And there will be mistakes that we will be prone to make. And we'll see some of those as we look together today that we're prone to make if we don't grieve our own losses first. But here's the thing. In spite of all the confusion and the awkwardness and the messiness and the pitfalls and all those things, it is absolutely crucial because the church needs to be the minister of comfort. And so it is so needed today that we are comforters out of the comfort that we have received because so many around us are in seasons of loss and grief and you may be there yourself. And our world, as we've thought about this morning in our worship time and in our prayer time, our world is full of loss. It's full of pain. It's full of of hurt. And so the world needs the comfort of the Lord. They need comforters. And so the benefits of working through this well far outweigh any of the messiness, any of the awkwardness, any of the difficulty, any of the pitfalls. And so we want to look this morning at a case study in comforting others. So we're in the book of Job, and Job is one of those books that you're like, I don't really want to look at Job because it's got a lot of, I don't want to think about all the bad stuff. But Job, just as a bit of background real quick, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, Job is about a man named Job. Um, Some of you may know Ed Glover, who is the uh, founder of Urban Impact that's down in Allegheny Center. When he first came to Christ, he tells the story about how he came to Christ. He didn't really know where to start reading the Bible. And so he was unemployed at the time. So he decided, I'm going to look at job because I need to get a job. It'll help me to, to get a job. So this is not the book of Job. This is the book of Job. Job was a man who was highly blessed of the Lord. Highly blessed of the Lord. He had wealth and possessions. If, if, you, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 2 and 3, it's, this is all he had. He had seven sons and three daughters, so he had ten children. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. This is Job. And yet God allows him as Satan comes to him and says, hey, God says to Satan, hey, have you ever considered my servant Job? He's got all this. I'll allow you to test him. Job says, you have put a hedge around him. You haven't allowed anything bad in his life. If anything bad comes, surely he will curse you, God. And so God gives Satan the permission to come against and to test Job with the one stipulation that he could not kill him. And so, all of these possessions, first the oxen and the donkeys, they're taken away, and the servants who watched over them except for one. Then the sheep, they die, and all the servants except one. Then all the camels, they're taken away by raiders. And all the servants are killed except one. And then, with all this pain, his seven children, or his ten children, seven sons and three daughters, are having a feast, and a wind comes and knocks down the building, and they all die. And Job hears all of this. Can you imagine that? Going from all of that to experiencing all of the loss. Basically, everything you have is gone in a day. And still he didn't curse God. And Satan came to him and said, of course he wouldn't. But if I inflict pain on him, 
then he will. God gave him the permission, as long as you don't kill him. And he had sores all over his body. And still, still, Job did not curse God. And so with that background, that's where we're, that's chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Gets us to verse 11 of chapter 2. When we're introduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And there's some lessons that we can learn from Job's friends. Three lessons, or four total, three lessons of what they did well, and a fourth lesson of what not to do. So let's look at those four lessons of how we can come alongside others with the comfort that we receive in comforting others. The first lesson is this. Job's friends did this well. They went, they, they decided to go to those grieving, to their friend Job. And so that's the first lesson. As we seek to comfort others, we go to those grieving. Verse 11 says again, when his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him. The better word, I believe, in there in the original language, the better word is to mourn, to go and mourn with him. And there's a reason why I'll let you know that in a moment. To go and to mourn with him and comfort him. So the first lesson in comforting others is to go to those who are grieving. When I was in seminary, I had a year, we had to do an internship, and it could be anywhere from three months to a year, and I was offered a position at a church in Ohio near where I grew up to do a year-long pastoral internship in a church. It was a great experience. But one of the things, soon after I came, uh, an individual in the church passed away. And all of a sudden, I was gripped with fear. What do I do? I wasn't comfortable going to a funeral home. I wasn't comfortable going to their house in the midst of their grief. What am I going to do? I was terrified. How am I going to go about this? And the mentor that I had, the pastor of the church, gave me advice that I carry with me that was so good. His advice was this. Just go and be with them. And he said this. People rarely remember what you say, but they remember that you were there. Let me say that again. Just go and be with them. People rarely remember in grief what you say, but they remember that you were there with them. And I found this to be so very true. And this is what Job's friends did well. They heard about his troubles. They agreed together. We need to go and to be with him, to sympathize, to mourn with him, to comfort him. In short, they just decided we're going to go to be with him. We'll see broken down a little bit in a moment that the ministry of presence during grief is one of the greatest things that you can do. And it takes zero skill and zero ability to go. It takes a decision. It takes a decision in the midst of the uh, discomfort, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of, oh no, how's this going to go? It just takes a decision to say, yes, God, I will go. Because you have comforted me in the past. I want to be used by you to be a comforter. So I'm just going to make the decision 
And I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my friend. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to go get in my car. I'm going to go to them. I'm going to set a time up. Comforting others in grief begins with a simple decision. And that decision is to go to those who are grieving. So when you go, then what do you do? What do you do? We learn from Job's friends a second lesson, and that is when you go, you empathize with those grieving. You empathize with those grieving. Verse 12 says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Imagine this. From a man who had so much, the greatest man in the entire East, to now his friends from a distance, they cannot even recognize him. The weight of loss from what he had suffered from pain and the disfigurement of the sores caused him to be unlike anything they had ever seen him before. If they didn't know that we were going to Job's house, they would not have been able to say, oh, there's Job. Loss, pain, the weight of grief was so heavy upon him that they could not even recognize him. Grief, pain, sorrow, suffering, it will change a person. It will change a person, and it did so to Job. For Job's friends, when they saw him, we're told they began to weep. They began to weep aloud. They, they tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. These were practices that were common in that culture of the day. Because it was believed that, that dust and the tearing of the robes represented outwardly that identification with death and with decay. Earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And the tearing of garments, the tearing of the physical. Outwardly, they expressed inwardly empathy. They grieved, joined, they joined in Job's loss and they grieved with him. This is key. They joined in his loss and they grieved with him. It's why I I think the better word instead of sympathize is mourn. Because ideas like pity and sympathy, I don't believe are what is in mind here. Because pity and sympathy is, oh, that's terrible. Oh, I feel sorry for you. But it usually leads to a declaration of that's terrible. You know, like, you know, even as we think about all that's going on in Ukraine right now, we are here. We are, we're an ocean away and a half a continent away. We look at it and we're like, oh, that's, that's bad. And we can have pity on them and we can sympathize. Oh, that's hard. But there's another level. And it's the level that, that Job's friends went with. They were moved to action. Because pity and sympathy, we can just kind of express our sorrow and then move on with our life. That's not what they did. Empathy is what Job's friends did. They put themselves in his position. They saw his grief and they allowed his grief 
to affect them. They allowed his grief to move them. They allowed his grief to put them in a place where they said, I'm not him, but I see all of this ugliness. I see the loss of his possessions. I see the loss of his servants. I see the loss of his children. I see these horrific sores on his body that we're told in other parts he would take broken pottery and scrape it away just to try to get really... I see his agony. I see it. And I'm putting myself in his position and it is ripping me apart. It's not just, oh, poor Job. Oh, Job, sorry this is happening. This is, I'm allowing it to wreck me as it's wrecking him. That's empathy. That's empathy. Empathy is allowing another person's pain to affect you. And that's hard to do. That's costly to do. It's much easier for us just to be like, hey, sorry, praying for you. That, that's, those are needed things. And realize there's not, not everyone's going to be able to be in everybody who is grieving in their lives in this way. But when those are, there are those close to us, this is what the deep comfort of God, how it spills over. We get in their shoes. We feel their pain. And it's possible when we are willing then to do the third lesson, the third action that Job's friends did. And this goes back to that idea, unfolding it a little bit more of that idea of presence, of spending time with those grieving. Verse 13, it says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days, And seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Think about that for a moment. For seven days and seven nights, 168 hours straight. They took the ministry of presence to a new level. Sitting with him and not saying a word. Those friends practice what today is known by Jews as Shiva. Shiva is the word for seven. And it is representative of a seven day period of grieving that was initially patterned all the way back to Joseph when his father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had passed away. And for seven days, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 10, Joseph and his family, at the initiation of Joseph, they grieved for a seven-day period. Shiva is practiced in the death of a father or a mother, a sister or a brother, a son or a daughter or a spouse. Seven days for seven different kinds of groups of people. And in Shiva, friends will come to the home of the person in grief. 
And they will follow this example of not speaking until the person in mourning speaks. Because what they recognize is if they come in and just begin to talk, they have no idea what the person suffering the loss really needs. And so they go and they wait. They don't speak until they're spoken to. And then they react off of that. And in that time, they will get really low chairs. (laughs) And they will sit in these low chairs as an outward expression of the inward lowness of spirit, of the inward depression that is there because of the grief that's being experienced. They will sit with them. Not being in a place of speaking a word until they are spoken to. That's costly, isn't it? Costly to give up seven days. But it's necessary. You know, seven days is really... We understand the process of grieving in human nature. It's just, that's just beginning of things, but it is the beginning. It's saying, I'm here with you. I'm willing to sit with you. I'm willing to be with you. It's engaging deeply with a person that's in grief over the course of time. It's a commitment to go. It's a commitment to empathize. It's a commitment to spend significant time with a person. And Job's friends did these things well. But then they got off track. To the point that in Job chapter 16, verse 2, Job calls them miserable comforters. (laughs) It's kind of one of those comic relief things in the midst of all this pain and agony and suffering and grief and loss to kind of read this, but knowing that, man, this is a painful statement that Job is saying, hey, here's my friends. His wife hasn't helped him much either. Here are the people who are closest to me and they're all miserable comforters. Because they didn't do this last lesson. And that is to listen more and to talk less with those grieving. When you read the book of Job, you'll find that for nearly 30 chapters, think about this, there's 42 chapters in the book of Job. Two chapters are, you know, things went well, things went horrible, here they come. And for nearly 30 chapters, and then the end, God's given his speech to, to Job, like, where were you, where were you, where were you, where were you, when, where were you, when? So that ultimately Job is able to come out at the end of saying, I didn't really get an answer for all this, but I knew about God before, but now I, now I really know God. I've seen him. So the majority of the book of Job, 30 chapters, is Job's friends giving speeches to him. And these speeches don't take many of the chapters of Job and say, here's good theology. Here's good understanding of what God is like. Here's good understanding of how, we under, of how we understand the brokenness of this world. Because it is filled with bad advice. It is filled with inaccuracies about the nature and the character of God. It is filled with plain old wrong ideas about why God allows people to suffer. 
So just know that when you read Job. You're not reading it for this is the right way. 30 chapters of speeches that are dead wrong. And the main theme in all of these speeches is a call to action of Job, or for Job by his friends, that he must have done something wrong. And the way out of his pain is he's got to fix his sin. Job just kept going back. I, I don't, God hasn't shown me anything. God hasn't shown me anything. I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I don't know what it would be. And they're like, you've got to have something wrong. You did something wrong. This is that A plus B equals C, that if things aren't going wrong, it's because you messed it up somewhere. That's not the theme of Job at all. The theme of Job is here's a guy who did it right, and he went through a lot of bad stuff. But yet he got to know God on the other side like he didn't know him before. If you turn to chapter 42, verses 7 through 9, at the end of all of God's speeches to help him understand really who he is, and Job's response of, once I knew, heard about you, but now I've seen you, God speaks to the three friends who have had all these bad speeches. It says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right. It's the second time in two verses, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job's friends are rebuked by the Lord for not speaking what is right of, of him, as Job had. And they bring the sacrifices. Job prays for him. And they receive forgiveness. You see, Job's friends, in those first three lessons, they did well. But in this last lesson, they did not do well. Because they did what we all want to do. Or even what we all may do. When someone near us is in pain. What they did is they tried to fix it. They tried to fix it. You know, in grief, there usually aren't answers. And nice little sayings are not going to get you through. Sometimes in well-meaning, we'll say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Which, by the way, is wildly unbiblical. He won't allow temptation more than we can handle. But he certainly, and Job's an example, will allow things that are more than we can handle so that we have nothing to hold on to except him. Statements sometimes like, well, God needed them more than we do. 
Well-meaning. Well-meaning. We want to give nice little sayings. We want to try to fix things so that the person that we love so much, who's in so much pain, that they'll be able just to get over it. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're making it about us and not about them. Let me fix your pain so I don't have to be discomforted. So I don't have to sit with you. Instead of trying to fix everything, we need to listen more and talk less. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to help us try to figure out how best to do this. And I, there's a little tool that I came across. It's, it's not, just full disclosure, this is not like a Christian tool, but I think there's a ton of good advice in this. It's called the Kvetching Order or Ring Theory. Two names. Developed by two people, Susan Silk and Barry Goldman. Kvetching is a Yiddish term for to moan, grumble, or complain continuously about something. Have you ever heard somebody kvetching? They're continuously moaning, grumbling, complaining about something. Now, here's the tool. Hopefully you can see this. At the center, that dot in the center of these circles is the aggrieved or the afflicted. In other words, this is the person that has experienced the loss. As you go out, you're drawing circles around to say, who are the other people who have been affected by this? So you have the person who has been aggrieved or afflicted. Maybe then outside of that, there's a significant other or there's a parent or there's a sister. Maybe outside of that are the close, true friends. Outside of that are the colleagues. Outside of that, I love it at the top, it's the looky-loos. You know, the looky-loos, they're the people who just love to see everybody's pain and suffering and look in on it. Oh, they're in trouble, they're in trouble, they're in trouble, they're in trouble. The looky-loos. But what the concept is, is that if you're at the center, you're able to convetch all you want to the people around you. You're able to dump out. But if you are not closest to the center, all you do is comfort by listening and not saying anything unless they ask for it. I think that's a pretty, pretty good way to look at this. It requires a couple things. It requires that we think through things ahead of time. And we don't often do that well. We don't often think through things ahead of time. To where I think before I go to the funeral home or before there's somebody that I'm talking to, I think, okay, where is this person at that I'm going to go visit? I'm going to. And where am I? If I'm outside of that person, then all I have to do, I just have to be quiet, to go, to be present, to empathize and to listen. 
Now, if I'm affected by this to some degree, but not as much as the person at the middle, and there are people outside of me that I know are not as close to this situation as I am, then I have the right to go to them and to complain, to ask for comfort, to say, this isn't fair. I don't like this. I don't understand why this has happened. I, have the fr- I can dump out, but I better not dump in. And so it requires some pre-thought, but it also requires something else. It requires that I deal with my losses. Because here's the thing. If I don't deal with my losses, when somebody else is dealing with loss and I come to them, I begin to just, because I look at their pain and I say, I can get that. I get that. Oh yeah. I identify. I identify. Yeah, I've been there. I've done that. Listen, we haven't been there and done that. Their situation is their situation specifically. There may be things that we understand, but it's not my situation. And until they ask me, Hey, you know what? I think you've kind of experienced this. What was it like? I should have no right to speak into it. But if I haven't processed it myself, when there's pain, when there's pain, I dump in. I say this sensitively, but just as awareness for us. Sometimes when you go through that grieving line at the funeral home, there's more comfort being given by the person who's lost to others than is being received. And the reason I believe is either we haven't thought it through where we're at in this whole circle thing, or I still have loss that I have not received the comfort of God from. It's unprocessed. It's undealt with. And it's triggering me This loss is triggering me and I need to do something about it and I just dump. That's not to condemn or to shame in any way. I think it's just reality and it helps us to kind of get a perspective. Oh, what do I do when somebody is in loss and in grief? Where am I? So that we can talk less and listen more. You know, these lessons go to those grieving, empathize, spend time with, listen more, talk less. I just want to acknowledge this morning that this is not easy stuff. This is not easy stuff. And I, as I've been reflecting this week, on this message, I, I realize more and more how much I still need the comfort of Jesus in areas and how imperfectly I do this ministry. <laughs> how easy it is for me and for us to bring our pain and our loss and our doubts and our questions into the grief of others. And how easy it is for me to be like Job's friends, a miserable comforter. And so I I just want to say, if I in any way in the midst of all of your grief at times, if I've dumped in on you and I've not been at the center, 
I ask your forgiveness because that wasn't my place. But I believe that this is such a needed ministry of the church, both for the body of Christ, the church family, and for our world. I really believe we need to commit to saying, Lord, help us. Help us to grow in this. Help us to do this ministry well. Comfort me. May we sit before the Lord with our sorrows and our griefs and offer them to him to receive the comfort that only he can give. So that in the time and space that it's needed and we are able, we can be this for others. Out of the comfort that we have received, may we give that comfort to others. I just want to pray for us and worship team will come as we close this series. I just want to pray blessing over us and say, God, even as we sing the cross before me, the world behind me, this is so much of the cross before me because this is living in death to self. This is coming to those places of receiving so that we can give. And if it's still about me getting, then Lord, I need, I need you. There's something in me that needs your comfort so that I can be your agent to give. So let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, I praise you that you are the God of compassion and the God of all comfort. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to receive that from you that you would teach us how to bring these losses into our lives, that, that we would not be people who just say, ah, the past is the past and it doesn't affect me. Lord, if it's still, if losses in the past are still affecting us today, Lord, it's our present. And so those things that maybe continue to come up, would you give us willingness? Would you give us grace? Would you give us the ability to trust that you are good and that we can bring our losses to you and that you're the God who comforts. And Father, out of the comfort that we receive, out of the compassion that we receive from you, may we, may, be, may we be good comforters. Not miserable comforters. May we be good comforters. So Father, I pray blessing over us that we would be a people who receive your comfort and who give it away well. For God, that's what you desire of your people. May we do this ministry well. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our comforter. We receive so that we might give for your glory, and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.